Happy Sabbath, everyone. Welcome to another rainy day in Portland and a sunny day in the presence of the Lord Jesus on His Holy Sabbath. Glad to be here with you this morning, especially on the Sabbath day. I want to begin this morning with a word of prayer, and I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as I kneel and pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful to be in your presence. We're so thankful for the promise of eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ, and the privilege we have of knowing him. Lord, I pray that we would not keep that privilege to ourselves. We thank you for the stirring appeals to mission that we've heard throughout the week, both local and abroad. And we pray, Lord, now our time in your word this morning would help us to better reflect your image to the world around us, for we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, our theme has been, but if not taken from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3 specifically, and I want to pick up this morning in Daniel chapter 3, kind of where we left off yesterday, but I will say this, I was going to review, but for sake of time, I want to let you know that if there's something that you didn't hear here that you wanted to hear, there's a ministry called Audioverse. How many of you are aware of Audioverse ministry? Okay. If you don't have the Audioverse app, you need the Audioverse app. Most of the presentations that have been made here will be available there if you haven't heard them, if you want to hear them again. They also have a booth in the exhibit hall, and I'm not being paid for this, by the way. This is not a paid promotion. It's just a blessing of a ministry that I want you to be aware of. And you can review some things that you have not heard. Now, I want to start, as I said this morning, kind of where we left off. We're going to go back just a little bit further. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 3 this morning, if you'll turn there with me. Daniel 3, starting in verse 16. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16. This is right after the king has challenged Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the words, who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated, and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 21 says, then these men were what? They were bound. I want you to take note of that. We're going to get back to that. They were bound in their coats, in their trousers, their turbans, and other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 23 says, These men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down. What? bound in the midst of the fiery, the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he arose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose. Praise the Lord. <laughs> four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt in the form of the fourth. 
is like the Son of God. You may ask the question, how did he know what the Son of God looked like? We are told in the spirit of prophecy they knew because in those 10 years between Daniel 2 and this event in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been doing that, that uh, quiet standing that we heard about the other night. They had faithfully witnessed for Jesus in that period of time, just as we ought to be doing in our daily experiences. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized the form of the fourth. Verse 26, the Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their heads was not singed, nor their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. I mean, if you've been around a campfire for two seconds, you smell like smoke. And we're going to get into this a little bit, but this amazes me here, this little part where the king had basically set up this image to glorify himself. I'm going to tell you what nobody in that crowd was thinking about at this moment, the image. Nobody cared about the gold image. They were focused on these three guys who, for some reason, survived the power of the furnace, and God's name was glorified. And it goes on to say in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap. He didn't learn the lesson about separation of church and state, did he? Because there is no other god who can deliver like this. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon, as we mentioned yesterday. This is the end of their story. We don't read anything else about them in the book of Daniel. Interesting again that as Nebuchadnezzar sees this powerful manifestation of the God of heaven, he actually makes a decree that anybody who doesn't worship the God of heaven be killed. And it's interesting if you read this in the book Prophets and Kings, Ellen White says that God was pleased with the fact that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to honor him. He just didn't understand that he couldn't force the conscience of others. I bring that up to say that we are heading into a time in this earth's history where there will be faithful men and women of God who will push for legislation of religion who don't know what it's all about. And God will recognize their sincerity and he'll be looking for, God's, for his own people to help them to understand the true issues. Sometimes we demonize anybody who would want to relate. They, oh, this person, they want to... They want to put church and state together. Hey, I don't agree with putting church and state together. But I think there are a lot of sincere people who don't understand where that path leads. Now, I was going to tell you, in fact, as I said earlier in the week, my, my goal this morning was to actually walk through more of Revelation 13. And I've been impressed to go a different direction this morning. I will summarize a little bit of this parallel with Revelation 13. And we'll go to Revelation 13 in a minute. But... Bear with me. In the kingdom of ancient Babylon, church and state were one, as, as it was in, in most of the heathen nations. They, they actually, they, they, in fact, they, they often viewed their kings as gods. So if your king is a god and he's making rules, you, you can't really separate that. 
The government made religious laws and enforced them by civil penalties. That's what we see in Daniel chapter 3 on the plain of Dura. That's what we see in, of Persia in Daniel 6 with the lion's den. And brothers and sisters, we know that in our day, according to prophecy, there will be a uniting of church and state, and religious legislation will be followed by civil penalties. These penalties will be mild at first, but they'll finally culminate into a universal death decree. And I've heard other presentations here, which is one of the reasons I steered in a different direction. Perhaps you didn't hear them, but if you go to Audioverse, you can catch all kinds of them. We're told in the book, Great Controversy, page 445, when the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state. I want to pause there and make the point here. It's the church that influences the state, not the state, the church. There's all kinds of people today worried about what the government's doing. Don't worry about the government. Worry about the Protestant churches of America. You, you go back to Christ's day, folks. It was not the Romans who wanted Jesus dead. It was the Jews, but they couldn't do it without the power of the state. You go to the Dark Ages, it wasn't the, it wasn't the governments of the world who wanted, I mean, I can't say they didn't want to get rid of the Christians, but it was the church in the Dark Ages that wanted the power of the state to persecute. And so it will be in the end of time. When the leading churches of the United States shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. And I believe that at that time, which I should say is this time, we're going to face our own image on the plain of Dura, proverbial Dura. We're going to face our own test. The Seventh-day Adventists, we've looked at this from study of Scripture and understand that the issue is going to have to do with the legislation of Sunday as a day of worship. And it's, you, you can't really miss the parallel with Daniel 3 where Nebuchadnezzar makes an image that looks almost like the one God showed him with a little tweak to serve himself. And then you come to the end of time and you've got a day of worship that looks almost like the one that God established, but just a little difference. We're going to do it on a different day. Incidentally, legislating any day wouldn't be proper. <laughs> just so you understand that. But this is the time, I believe, that we live in. This is the test, I believe, we're going to face. And our consistent question for the past several mornings has been, how can we be sure we end up on the right side of this thing? And my burden this morning is I'm, I'm afraid that many Adventists fall into the trap of, of, of missing what the real issue is with Sunday legislation, with the Sunday laws, with the final test. I know a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who have this mindset that, yeah, there are probably some things I shouldn't be doing, or there are things I should be doing differently, and there are some reforms I should make, and I should probably move more regular at church, and I probably shouldn't be drinking so much Starbucks, and I probably... Be but listen, when the Sunday law comes... When I see the Sunday law on the horizon, then I'm going to know. I'm going to start getting back in my devotional life. I'm going to go, go. I'm going to start going back to church. I might even go to Sabbath school. I'll start drinking decaf. I'll, I'll, I'll cancel all the, all the secular song playlists on Spotify and whatever it is when the Sunday law comes. Let me be clear with you this morning. That will never happen if you wait to that point. And I want you to see that as we 
open the Bible to Revelation chapter 13. Now we're going to, we're going to come to the end of Revelation 13 and I, and I want you to see something as we flow into chapter 14. Start to Revela- well, starting in Revelation chapter 13 verse 16. Turn with me to Revelation 13 and verse 16. The Bible says in verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their what? Their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the what? The name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Keep reading. The chapter breaks weren't there in the original. John is seeing two groups contrasted. He just got done seeing the group who follows the beast, and now it says in verse 1 of chapter 14, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having what? Now, depending on your translation, I should have asked it there because I know that, that the New King James says having his father's head, but I believe the NIV, the ESV say having... Pardon me. Let me slow down a little bit. I know how much I need to cover and I'm looking at the clock. Having his father's name written in their foreheads, New King James, NIV and ESV, some translations say having his name in his father's name. But the point I want you to notice is that there are two groups, two marks, and each one has a name in the forehead. The Bible speaks of the forehead as the center of our thoughts. It's the frontal lobe. It's where we make our decisions. It's where character is formed. And name in the Bible often refers to character. For example, we heard last night Uh, In last night's presentation, the name Jacob means, do you remember? Heel grabber, (laughs) supplanter, somebody who's trying to take somebody else's place. And if you read in the story in Genesis, when Esau finds out what happened, his response is, is he not rightly named Jacob? Because Jacob means something, the name meant something. When the child of promise was born to Abraham and Sarah, they called his name Isaac. Does anybody know what Isaac means? It means laughter. Why did you call your kids laughter? Because both of them laughed when God told them they were going to have a child in their old age. So names meant something in the Bible. And if you go back to Exodus 33, which is one of my favorite places, Moses goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, show me your glory. Glory is another word that has reference to character. And the Lord answers and he says, I will show you. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. It's synonymous with glory. And then he says, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. And then the Lord goes before Moses and shares his character attributes. My point is this. What we're looking at in the book of Revelation is revealing to you and me that the final test is not a test of how much you know what day this is going to happen on and what the test is going to be and Sunday's the right day or Saturday's the right day or whatever that is. The final test is going to be a test of character and character can't be formed in the last couple minutes of your life. The test is a test of character. And we're told in the book, Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 216, Ellen White asks this question. She says, what are you doing, brethren, in the great work of preparation? 
Those who are uniting with the world are receiving the worldly mold and preparing for the mark of the beast. Do you understand that the way we live today, the choices we're making today are going to prepare us for whether we get the mark or not? It's not because you know the right answer on the test. Peter knew the right answer on the test. Jesus said, you're going to deny me. Oh, no, I won't. And yet three times he denied him because he didn't know himself. Because he hadn't developed the character that he needed. She says, those who are uniting with the world are receiving the worldly mold and preparing for the mark of the beast. Those who are distrustful of self, who are humbling themselves before God and purifying their souls by obeying the truth, these are receiving the heavenly mold and preparing for the seal of God in their foreheads. When the decree goes forth and the stamp is impressed, their character will remain spotless for eternity. I'm going to tell you a little bit of an embarrassing story for me. When I was in college, my first year of college, I had a, my Psych 101 class had an 11 a.m. lecture, which is fine. But it had a 7.40 a.m. lab. Now, these days in my life, 7.40 is sleeping in. But when I was 18, who in the world would be up and dressed and in class at 7.40 a.m.? Now, I lived in mid-Missouri at the time. And it was the winter semester, and it was cold. And most of you young people can't even relate to this, but some of you here might be able to relate to the joys of a heated waterbed. I had a heated waterbed, and I want to tell you that when that alarm clock went off in the morning so I could be ready to be in a psych lab at 7.40, get out of the bed into the cold, or stay in my warm, comfortable water bed and hit the snooze button. I, I, I can't even begin to describe the pleasure of hitting snooze. <laughs> it was just a, such a euphoric. And unfortunately, I did that many times during that semester. And it felt great every time. Until the day that I went into that exam hall at the University of Missouri. 20,000 people on campus, about 500 people in that lecture hall. Uh, not lecture, well, it was a lecture hall, but it was exam hall. Final exam, and I went in to my quiet little place, and the paper was upside down, and I flipped it over, and it looked like a foreign language to me. <laughs> and I will tell you that all the cramming in the world I could have done would not have prepared me for that final exam. And there are far too many Seventh-day Adventists who think they're going to be able to cram for the final test, and it's not going to happen. It's a test of character, and character must be developed now. We're told in the book Education, page 108, the harvest of life is character, and it is this that determines destiny both for this life and the life to come. So how do we build character? Well, take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 5. And Paul gives us a little insight here. Romans chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, that is, we've received Jesus Christ, we've had, we have justification, we have that confident assurance of salvation in Christ, we begin then on a journey. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have faith, uh, uh, sorry, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope 
of the glory of God. Now, time does not permit me to go into the details of this, but he's talking about how we hope in the fact that one day we can reflect the character of God. It's what we hope for. And so he says in verse 3, not only that, but we also glory in what? Tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. I want you to walk, I want you to walk with me through this process. Tribulation produces perseverance. When you hear the word perseverance, what do you think of? If I say you need to persevere at something, what kind of something do you think of? Are you thinking of that vacation you planned in the Bahamas? Boy, I'm going to have to persevere through that one. More than likely not. You're thinking about something difficult. You're thinking about something challenging. You don't have to persevere through other things. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that tribulation, trials, hard times produce perseverance because you don't have to press through easy times. But when you press through the hard times, you gain an experience. Now, the King James actually uses the word experience instead of character here. They're both correct. It's going through those difficult times that give you a level of experience you could not have any other way. The reason I, I, I'm burdened to share this this morning is that there are too many Christians, especially in today's world, that read trials in their Christian life as an evidence that they must be unspiritual. If you're going through a hardship, you're doing something wrong. I'm going to tell you, if you don't have hardship in your Christian life, you're not living a Christian life. Jesus says the Christian life involves a cross, and that cross implies hardship. And it's the Lord himself who brings the trials because they develop character. Jesus never promised us. Listen, let me share with you a statement. It's found in uh, the book, This Day with God, Little Devotional, page 212. Ellen White says in that book, frequently, the very best evidence that we can have that we're in the right way, not the wrong way, the right way, is that the least advance costs us effort. That means the littlest step is hard. The least advance costs us effort and darkness shrouds our pathway. That's the very best, frequently the very best evidence we can have that we're in the right way. This day with God 2.12. Look, Jesus never said in this life we wouldn't have tribulation. He said in John 16.33, in this life you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. In this world, rather, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, I want you to look at a passage with me this morning in Luke 22, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, that just, we were actually going through the Sabbath school quarterly on the crucible, within the crucible of the Christ, it was on trials, the whole quarter was on trials, and, and this is the first time this really struck me, this passage, Luke 22, this is where Jesus is telling Peter about the trial that is coming, and I want you to notice verse 31. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus is talking to Peter. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has what? Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Oh, there's a lot in that verse. Here's the first thing I want to ask you. 
Why did the devil ask? Satan has asked for you that he may sift you. Satan has asked that he may bring a trial. Why did he ask? Listen to me very carefully, brothers and sisters. Evidently, he wasn't allowed unless he got permission. He had to ask. And Jesus doesn't say it overtly, but it's obvious when he says, but I've prayed for you that your faith fail not, that the answer that God gave Satan when he asked was what? Satan said, can I go in and bring a trial to Peter? And God evidently said yes. Now that may sound a little discouraging to you this morning, but it shouldn't. What it tells us is that if there, whatever trial we face, God has allowed it, he's in charge of it. And he'll never allow the fire to get so hot that it'll be too much for us. Now, I'm talking up here on the stage in a relatively uh, nice morning, but I've gone through trials, and it doesn't feel that way when you're going through trials, but then is when we need to walk by faith and not by sight. But what a fascinating thing. Satan has asked for you, but I've prayed. And incidentally, in his, in his comment, Jesus says, I pray for you, and when you return to me. So very, in the very context, he's basically saying, you are going to go from me. You're going to deny me. So why say, I pray for you that your faith fail not? After the denial, it wasn't done with Peter. There was still an opportunity for faith, and Jesus was praying for that. And praise the Lord, Peter took his stand later for Christ. The same apostle Peter then tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 12. This is that same Apostle Peter that went through that trial. He says to you and me, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the what? The fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Now, how many of you know this verse? I, I mean, most Christians have been exposed to this verse at some point in time, but why is it that you know, we can go through so much of life, most of us here, are staying in some cushy hotel room. We're in this nice climate-controlled auditorium, dressed in our nice clothes, might even have some nice perfume or cologne on, having this, and we have one little thing that comes up and we say, that, that challenges us and say, God, why did this happen? And Peter says, beloved, don't think it's strange, as though some strange thing happened to you. You ought to know as a Christian that this is part of the process God has chosen to fit you for heaven. He continues in the next verse. Now, because we read that and say, okay, okay, I get it, Pastor. I'll slog through it. Uh, I'll hunker down and I'll go through this trial. No, Peter then says, don't think it's strange, but rejoice. To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. It's not an accident that in the fiery furnace, the only thing that got burned up were the ropes. Right? Even, even it says even the hair of their head wasn't singed. There wasn't a smell of smoke on their clothes. The only thing, the only evidence they had gone through the trial is that the ropes that had bound them were gone. And brothers and sisters, if we make it through the trial of this life, and we end up in the kingdom of God. 
We will say, as Helen White said in the book Early Writings, heaven is cheap enough. This didn't cost me anything. We won't be able to recall our trials as great as they seem here. The only thing we'll be missing are the ropes that bound us. We are told, uh, this is in my life today, page 92, it says, God would have his servants become acquainted with their own hearts in order to bring to them a true knowledge of their condition, he permits the fire of affliction to assail them so that they may be purified. And if we by faith can hold on to that and remember that the Lord is in charge of the trial and he's doing it to save us, it makes the trial bearable. He permits the fire of affliction to assail them so they may be purified. The trials of life are God's workmen to remove the impurities, infirmities, and roughness from our characters and fit them for the society of pure heavenly angels in glory. She continues, the fire will not consume us, but only remove the dross, and we shall come forth seven times purified bearing the impress of the divine. She's drawing right from that example of the three Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace. Heated up the fire seven times. All it did was burned up the ropes that bound them. You're going to go through trials in this life. Some of you may be in the midst of it. Know that that's evidence that the Lord Jesus loves you and is working to save you. And Jesus always finishes what he started. Amen? Now, in light of these things, I was thinking about this. Here we are at this time in, in life where now is our opportunity to be developing character for eternity. And I praise the Lord for opportunities and events like GYC where we can come and be spiritually fed and spiritually revived. And I want to share with you an illustration that I've given many times about things like GYC but never at GYC. So I thought it's time for me to share it at GYC. Because too often I see people come to events like this and they're on a spiritual high and then they leave and their spiritual life just takes a plummet. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, just, Paul, Paul, Paul is talking about the, the old and new covenants, comparing the old and new covenants. You know the old covenant written on tables of stone and the new covenant written on the tables of the heart. How In the old covenant the law was external. And the law of God is holy while it's external, but if we don't ever let the Holy Spirit write the law in our hearts, we're not going to be in the kingdom of God. Right? Spiritual things can't be outside of us. We have, it has to be internal. I can't just hang around Christian people. I've got to choose to be a Christian. Amen? And so Paul's using this framework of Moses coming down from the Mount Sinai. Now you can read it in 2 Corinthians 3. You can read it back in the book of Exodus. Moses comes down from the Mount of Sinai, and you remember that when he came down, what happened to his face? His face was actually glowing from being in the presence of God. Glowing so brightly, in fact. Glowing so brightly that he had to put a veil over his face because the people couldn't stand to look at it. But over time, what happened to the brightness? It faded away. And so Paul makes that, that application in 2 Corinthians 3 that the glory faded away. And Moses could take the veil off of his face. And Paul uses that to say that's what happens when we come in contact with 
the law on tables of stone and we don't internalize it. And you say, what's this have to do with GYC? Here's exactly what it has to do with GYC. We come to things like this. It's like going up into the mountain with God. And when we come away, our faces are glowing, resplendent with the glory of the experience. But if we do not internalize the things we heard and learned, if we do not put into practice the things we learned. Many of you here have come under conviction of many different things. The Spirit of God has been urging you to take certain steps, to make certain decisions, to make certain reforms. And if we don't do it, if we don't internalize, I will assure you the glory will fade away. And you'll be scratching your head saying, I don't know what happened. I was so on fire at GYC. And my friends, this morning, I do not want that to be the case with anyone here, and it doesn't need to be. Now, I thought this morning about making an altar call. I don't want an altar call. I, I, there's nothing wrong with altar calls. There's places for altar calls. But sometimes altar calls, it came up, and I did this thing. I want to leave you with some practical challenges. Leaving, going from GYC, I'm going to leave you with a number of practical challenges. That's how I want to leave off this morning. Number one, I want to challenge, this is, this is the most obvious one, but I want to challenge you to be in, either continue or start up regular devotional time with the Lord. And I want to recommend to you the most underrated resource in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's a book put out by the GC called the Discipleship Handbook. Every Seventh-day Adventist should have one. The first five or six chapters walk you through a very practical way how to have a positive, powerful devotional experience. And there's a Bible and Spirit of Prophecy reading plan in the back if you don't know what to do in your devotional time that will get you on the right track. Now, part of the reason I'm telling you this is you, we, as Christians, too often, we, we, our decisions are up here somewhere. We don't, we don't bring it down to the practical we, we sit in a thing like this and we say, yeah, I should start reading more. No, 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 no. How are you going to start reading? What are you going to start reading? What time of day are you going to do it? I want you to make those decisions here. Make those plans so that you can follow through with them. I want you to be making plans now how to carry on those personal reforms. What has the Spirit of God been telling you? Maybe you do need to cancel that Spotify account. I don't know what you need to do, but the Spirit of God does. And if you know about it, you can't just say, yeah, I probably should do some things. Start making plans. Folks, we make more plans for the success of our secular lives than we ever come close to with plans for our spiritual lives. Start making plans to succeed in your spiritual life. Ask for spiritual accountability. And if, if you realize that your circle of friends are not the kind of people that would keep you accountable, then like we said yesterday, maybe you need to pick a different crowd that you're trying to please. Find people and say, these are the things that I'm trying to do in my spiritual life. Help me to stay on track. Call me and pray with me each day. Visit together once a week or something or the other. Two more things. Get involved in your local church. I know that there, there's, there's, a, there's an epidemic among young people that, oh, my church doesn't want me, they're not interested in me. Folks, oh, if time permitted, 
When I started going to church when I was 26 years old, they were all old people. There were some nice, there were some mean. If I had just said, well, they don't accept me, they're not inviting me in, and they're not there, I would not be standing here today. As much as I love the saints in the church, I'm not here for them, I'm here for him. And if you say, oh, our church is dead, maybe the Lord wants you to go in to help revive it. Start being an agent of change. Get involved in your local church. And involvement doesn't mean you have to be up front. For some reason, with the younger generations, hey, let's get the kids involved and get them on the platform. There's a whole bunch of things in the church that need done that aren't on the platform. Get active and involved in your local church like you're a member there. And if you're a member of a church, if you're a, if you're a young person, look, you're adults here. I know there are young people that are like 26 years old and say, yeah, my membership's back at my mom and dad's church. Why? You're grown up now. Put your membership where you are and be active. And finally, finally, I want to challenge you to think, to, to, to think of, put, ask the Lord to lead you to one person that you can give a Bible study to this year. I'm going to tell you, everybody in here can give a Bible study to somebody, and that will strengthen you more than you can, you can understand. But make some practical decisions here of what you're going to do with your spiritual life, and the Lord will bless you to that end. Those types of things will block by block be building characters for eternity, and when the test comes, you'll stand. That's my desire for you. That's my prayer for you. And I'm going to ask if you bow your heads with me this morning as we commit ourselves to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, you know our hearts this morning. You know what you've been speaking to each one of us. And we're individuals, Lord, so you speak to us individually. For one, you're calling them to one thing and to another to another thing. Lord Jesus, may we not leave this conference without making practical committed decisions for change. We know the test is on the horizon, Lord. And today is our day of opportunity. There are many here, Lord, have been putting off spiritual decisions, thinking they're going to wait until the last moments and see Sunday's laws pass or something else happen. Lord, I pray today you would impress upon our hearts the need, the need for spiritual commitments now. And Lord, as we pray these things, all of the commitments I shared this morning, I recognize, we recognize, we do not have the moral strength to do them unless by the Spirit of God we are empowered to do them. But I pray for the Spirit to work in our lives to will and to do of your good pleasure. Father, I thank you for your presence with us this morning. I ask through the remainder of the Sabbath that you will continue to stir our hearts. And I pray that as we leave here, our faces will be glowing with the glory of your presence and that that glow will continue to grow brighter and brighter until the coming of Jesus. For we ask and pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. This message was recorded in partnership with Audioverse, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh Avenue Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.